Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. As the new year begins, there are many of you that make a new year resolution to read through the whole Bible in one year following a Bible reading plan. One of the most famous Bible reading plans is the McShane Bible Reading Plan. This is the plan made by Pastor Robert Murray McShane from Scotland in the early 1800s. Today, we will be discussing the life of Pastor Robert Murray McShane. Robert Murray McShane was born on May 21, 1813 in Edinburgh, Scotland, and was the youngest out of five siblings. At that time, his whole family attended church regularly. McShane was accepted into University of Edinburgh in 1827 when he was 14 years old and was pulled into living a worldly life. He spent the first two years of college attending parties and fell into gambling. As McShane was living the sinful life and moving farther away from God, something shocking happened to him. His older brother David, whom McShane was closest to, passed away suddenly in 1831. He began to think deeply about life after death at the death of his brother. Then he came across a Christian book that helped him believe that God's words in the Bible were true. As he began to believe in the Bible, McShane began to build a relationship with Jesus and change the way he lived his life. This is what was written in McShane's diary after he came to know Jesus. March 3rd, 1832. I will never gamble again. March 25th. I will keep the Holy Sunday. April 10th. I will not attend any more parties and I will definitely stop dancing. As he began to know Jesus, McShane gave up all the worldly things that he enjoyed before. We will continue our discussion after the first song. you could say about me But I'm not defined by mistakes that I've made because God says I'm me I am not who I was Thank you. 
Christ Made in the image of the giver of life Righteous and holy, reborn and remade Accepted and worthy, this is our new name Forgiven, beloved, hidden in Christ Made in the image of the giver of life Righteous and holy, reborn and remade Accepted and worthy, this is our new name This is who we are now Robert Murray McShane, who came to know Jesus personally, read the books by Jonathan Edward and David Brainerd and tried to live his life wholly before God. He surrendered his life to God and gave up his former studies and began his study in theology. After he began his new changed life, McShane met his mentor, Thomas Chalmers, who helped McShane grow in faith and spiritually as they studied God's words together. In 1835, at the age of 22, he became a pastor and served as pastor of a church in Dundee in November 1836. This is how Martin Lloyd-Jones described McShane's religious life. Every Sunday, as McShane stood in front of the congregation to preach his sermons, people were moved to repent their sins to God by just looking at his face and before listening to his sermon. People compared McShane's face to the face of Moses as he came down the mountain after his meeting with God. They said that it was evident that McShane was preaching the words of God and having a personal relationship with him. People knew that McShane only spoke the truth and preached words that related to God. It was evident that he preached about a God that he personally experienced. However, McShane realized that many members of his congregation were living a life like he did when he did not truly know Jesus and was just attending church on Sundays. He wanted the people to truly live a changed life knowing Jesus, and that was why he preached the words of God passionately. And soon after, because of McShane, Dundee became a campaign of repentance. But at the end of the year, 1838, After only two years of preaching passionately, he became very ill. He had to return to his parents' home in Edinburgh because of his health. Even though his illness, he did not stop praying for his congregation and even wrote them a letter of encouragement. And he prayed diligently to God for fast recovery. However, his health did not recover easily. Even in the spring of the following year, 1839, there was no sign of recovery. That is when he stopped praying for his health and pleaded with God to know His will for him. Something miraculous happened in Dundee as soon as McShane stops praying for his recovery and started to seek God's will for his life. After the campaign of repentance that McShane began, Pastor William Burns, who was preaching on a missions trip out in China, came to Dundee to preach. A revival began to come over the Church of Dundee. With this, McShane's health began to recover. After McShane returned to Dundee, Pastor Burns decided to go back to preach in China and looked forward to seeing God fulfill His work through Pastor McShane. When Pastor McShane returned to Dundee after his recovery, the strength of the revival in Dundee was powerful. At that time in Dundee, there were 39 different prayer meetings that occurred daily, and five of those prayer meetings were formed by children for other children to attend. A choice. Set before you now 
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is a Christ-directed mission, part two, based on Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Lead people to Christ and then expect them how to figure out how to follow Christ on their own. This is where it starts. What does he say next? Baptizing them. When you think about baptizing, I want you to think about helping people be established in their faith. Evangelize and establish people. That's why baptism was so important. That's why what you and I witnessed this morning when we saw these guys come into this this pool over here and be baptized, they publicly identified with Christ and with his church. This is huge. And I want to encourage you, just as a side note, if you have placed your faith in Christ but you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to take that step and publicly identify with Christ and with His church and the symbol of being dead in your sin and raised to life. That's what this is about. So we help people get established in the church after we lead them to Christ. And then teaching them to follow, to obey everything I have commanded you. So we've got going, baptizing, and then teaching. We equip them to follow Christ. Evangelize, establish people in the faith, and then equip them to follow after Christ. Teach them how to pray Teach them how to study God's Word. Teach them how to share the gospel. Now, this is huge. And we really miss it here, guys. We miss it big time when we relegate this role, making disciples, teaching people to follow Christ to different programs. And we say, well, well, the institution's going to take care of that. We say, well, if somebody comes to Christ, we're going to help them be established in the church, maybe through baptism. But then We'll let an RBF teach them how to follow Christ. 
Or we'll let them just go to worship on Sunday mornings, and that'll teach them how to follow Christ. And, and please hear me. Those are both extremely important. Both a, a, a relational Bible fellowship that you're involved in studying the Bible with community of faith, coming to worship, hearing the Word of God preached, huge. Let me ask you a question. If you lead somebody to faith in Christ, and they begin their walk with Christ, what's going to be the most effective way to teach them to pray? To put them in a Bible study on prayer or for you to invite them into your quiet time and say, let me show you how to pray. Let me show you what I've learned about prayer and how I pray every day. Which is going to be more effective? How about teaching them to study the Bible? Which is going to be more effective? Put them in an RBF where they learn how to study the Bible? Yes, that can be helpful. But would it be helpful, maybe even more helpful, for you to invite them into your own Bible study to show them, here's how I study the Bible. Here's the questions I ask. Here's the things I go through in my Bible study. That's going to be huge, isn't it? This is a personal investment of our lives. This takes a lot more time. This is actually building relationships. This is actually what Jesus is talking about, though. What's going to be the most effective way to teach someone to share the gospel? Put them in a witness training course? Or for you to invite them to come alongside you and and you show them how to share the gospel with other people? Many of us feel very uncomfortable when it comes to this. And I'm guessing that a lot of us have never had the opportunity to really be with somebody who is active in sharing their faith and learn from them. I remember that's the first time I ever shared the gospel. I got conned into it. It was deception. This guy who was the first guy who really began to, to do this process in my life, began to show me how to follow Christ. He invited me and a friend of mine. We were out of school one day in high school, and he said, I want you guys to do some go-kart arcade kind of things with me at this place. We were like, yeah, we're in. We got there, and he showed up with a video camera. And we were like, are you going to video us doing go-karts? And and he said, no, no, what we're going to do is we're going to do all those things and then we're going to go around to different teenagers and we're going to video them. We're going to ask them what they think about Jesus, what they believe about Jesus. We're like, well, can we still do go-karts? And he said, yeah, yeah, we can still do that. And so that's what we did. We went and go play go-karts or games for a little while. And then we'd go over to the side and he'd start videoing these people. Me and my buddy are just kind of standing in the back, just kind of looking around, waiting for the next game we're going to go to. Well, one time he's got his video camera there. What do you think about Jesus? This guy's talking, this teenager. And then this guy puts down the camera and he says, my friend David here has a personal relationship with Jesus and he would like to share with you what Jesus means to him. And I just came to play go-karts, you know? And right there in that circumstance, for the first time, I had the opportunity to share my faith. And I'll be honest, I was hooked because I'd seen it in action and somebody had poured their life into me enough to show me what it means to do this. This is huge. Let me ask you a question. I want you to be real honest. I want you to imagine this morning that tomorrow you have the opportunity to lead somebody to faith in Christ. Imagine that tomorrow in your workplace, your home maybe, your community, tomorrow you have the opportunity to lead somebody to faith in Christ. I want to ask you a question this morning. What would you do with them? What is your plan over the next six months to teach them how to follow Christ? Do you have a plan for that? If I were to talk one-on-one with you today, and ask you, what's your plan? Once you lead somebody to Christ, if you lead somebody to Christ this week, what are you going to do with them over the next six weeks? Do you have a plan that you could say, here's what I'm going to do to teach them to follow Christ? I'm guessing that most of us in this room don't have that kind of plan. And I think that signals one of two things. Either number one, it signals that we're not planning to lead anybody to faith in Christ tomorrow, which is problematic. Or number two, we're planning to lead somebody to faith in Christ tomorrow. We're planning on leaving them on their own to follow after Christ. And that is also problematic. We need to be good at making disciples. Now, this is a huge commitment. This is, this is moving from the back of the boat to the front of the boat. In order to teach somebody else how to pray, you have to pray. In order to teach somebody how to study the Bible, you know what you've got to be doing? Studying the Bible. In order to teach somebody else how to share their faith, you've got to be Sharing your faith. But isn't this what happens when the community of faith starts to take responsibility for this and gives themselves to this? What would happen in this church if that was taking place? Just think about it. And the result is going, baptizing, teaching. And I'm going to add a fourth participle here. We don't really see it in Scripture. I think it's implied. If you don't like it, then just don't write anything down here. But I want you to see that when we go and we baptize and we teach, the result is we start multiplying. And we evangelize, we establish, and we equip people to follow Christ. And that means we start to extend our life into the lives of others. And what God has done in us, we begin to multiply the lives of others. I'm not saying that we make clones of ourselves. The last thing we need is more of us. But we begin to help people experience what it means to become like Christ with the gifts, talents, personalities God has given them. And we multiply the image of Christ. 
in them. That's what making disciples is all, all about. Problem is, we miss out on this completely. Many times in the church, I think we take multiplication and we turn it into addition. And we miss out on the whole point of the Great Commission. Let me give you an example. I want you to imagine with me. Imagine that in this room, we've got a pretty packed house here. Imagine that in this room over the next year, we were able to lead together, combined together, working together, we were able to lead one person to Christ every day over the next year. Pretty exciting. This time next year, 365 people would come to faith in Christ. Imagine we were to continue to do that. This church were to continue to do that. The next year and two years and three years. 30 years from now, I think 33 years, you do the math, you'd come to about over 13,000 people coming to faith in Christ. It'd be pretty exciting. You would make a small dent in the lost population in Alabama. Let me give you another scenario, though. What if just one member at the church of Brook Hills, just one of us in this room, over the next year, instead of leading one person to faith in Christ every single day, what if over the next year you led just one person to faith in Christ? But you didn't stop there. Suppose you took Jesus at his word and you showed them the importance of being baptized and you began to equip them to follow Christ so that at the end of that year they were able to go out and begin to do the same thing in somebody else's life and you began to take Jesus for real when he says multiply. So the next year two would go out and four would go out. You know what's interesting? You do the math in the same time frame that we saw 13,000 people come to faith in Christ over there in this scenario, you would see over 4 billion people come to faith in Christ. Maybe... Jesus knew what he was talking about. Do the math, church. Is it the dream of this church to go to 5,000, 10,000 people? If so, your dream is too weak. God wants to use this church and the families in this room to lead millions to faith in Christ. I believe that. You say it's idealistic. No, it's the plan of Christ. It's why in Acts chapter 1, 120 people gathered together. The Holy Spirit came down on them in Acts chapter 2. And the rest of the chapters to follow show how these 120 people, not the sharpest tools in the shed either, they turned the world upside down for Christ. How do you do that? You do that because they had seen disciple making in Jesus. They began to multiply their lives and the lives of others. And they began to impact nations for the glory of Christ. This is the plan. I mean, think about it. You've got a, a picture there that I think will help you picture this. You've got the world there at the bottom, 6.2 billion people. That's a lot of people in the world. How can your life impact nations for the glory of Christ? Well, you go. You lead people to become followers of Christ, Jesus followers. They become believers. But then go to the top there. There's a, not a blank there, but there should be. Disciple. You baptize people, and they become established as disciples of Christ. And then you don't stop there. You begin to teach them to follow Christ so that they become disciple makers. And then you start to multiply. And that's how the church of Brook Hills, based on the word and the authority of Christ, can impact nations for the glory of Christ. Now, is this a plan worth getting in on? I think so. It's unstoppable. It's guaranteed. The plan's outlined right there. But let's be honest. We are tempted in the church today to do everything except for the one thing Jesus has told us to do here. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the Gospels do you see Jesus tell us to build colleges, universities, or seminaries. You say, well, Dave, you get a paycheck from one of those. I do. You're exactly right. But Jesus didn't say to do that. Nowhere does he say to, to establish Sunday schools or RBFs. doesn't say to do that. Nowhere does he say to construct buildings. Never says that. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't good. I'm saying they can be very good. Jesus didn't tell us to do those things. He told us to do one thing, make disciples in every part of the world. And as long as an RBF or a seminary or a building is helping us to be more effective at making disciples in all, every part of the world, then go for it. But as soon as we get focused on those things and we ignore the one thing he's told us to do, we have missed the whole point of our mission as a church. Now, now, I want to ask you a question. It's going to kind of help bring this home. I want to ask you a question. You've got it there on your notes page. I want to ask you, are you a receiver or are you a reproducer? Are you a receiver or a reproducer? In order to illustrate what I mean by that, I want to take you with me to the Sudan. We go into the Sudan, and our, our goal there is to train church leaders in disciple-making. Now, I thought... When I initially signed up for this trip, we were going to go into the Sudan, preach to masses of people, lead people to Christ, that sort of thing. And the guy who's leading the trip says, no, Dave, we're not going to do that. He said, what would be more effective for us to come in? And we could have tried the crowds, no doubt. What would be more effective for us to do that or for us to train some leaders who can go out and do that with the crowds who live there? I said, well, that's a good point. That would be more effective. 
We're not going to come in, white man, save the world. We're going to come in and we're going to train. What we did was we limited our time to church leaders who could speak English. Only those who could speak English because we doubled the amount of time, uh, the amount of material we were able to teach them. And church leaders who were going to be able to go and teach these things to others. And so that's what we did. I would walk in every day to this mud hut. A bunch of guys, Sudanese church leaders, crammed into this mud hut. It was amazing. I remember walking in and immediately all the guys in there would stand out of respect for the teacher. Just blew me away. Let me tell you what's never happened in a seminary classroom in the United States. But anyway, I walk in, I walk in, and these guys, my heroes in the faith in so many ways. I remember one guy sitting up to my left, older man, is practically blind because he spent the last three years translating the scriptures into his tribe's language. Amazing guys. We would sing, and then they would sit down, and we would be, I began to teach them disciple making. And as we were going through that, the whole time I was teaching them, I hardly ever saw their faces. Hardly ever saw their eyes. Why? Because they were sleeping? Because they were daydreaming? They just weren't paying attention? No. They had their heads down, writing down every single thing I said. And they would come up to me afterwards and they said, Dave, we believe we have the responsibility to take everything that you have taught us, translate it into our language, and turn around and teach it in our tribes. And ladies and gentlemen, that is why Christianity has quadrupled in the Sudan over the last 20 years, even amidst civil war, because people are saying what Christ gives to us is not just for us, it's for others. And it changed the way they listen. They listen because they were ready to pour it into somebody else because they were giving their life to multiplying. It's the same thing I saw in Honduras. I remember my first trip to Honduras. I went there and I was preaching my first sermon. There were some guys sitting on the front, sitting there writing down every single thing I said intently. Remember, they came up to me afterwards. They said, David, thank you for your sermon. We can't wait to reteach that to someone else. Until I realized they said that to everybody they heard preach God's word. Because they listened, not just for themselves, they were pouring it into other people. And so I want to ask you this morning, let's be honest, are we receivers or reproducers in this room? How many of us can honestly say that we are listening to the word of God this morning with the intent to teach somebody else what we have heard this morning, this week? I wasn't here last week when you... I had someone talk about covenant marriage. How many of you could reteach that sermon to me, poured into me, because you were listening not just to receive but to reproduce? This changes the way we listen. It changes the way we look at our Christianity. Many of us are good at coming into a worship service, sitting, and even if we listen, we're listening to, to be fed and to receive, and that is a self-centered way to listen. It's a self-centered way to receive the Word of God. What happens when we become God-centered and we say, you know, what's entrusted to me is not just for me. It's not just for the, the people in this room. It's for the nations to know how good He is. What happens when we stop receiving and we start reproducing? That is a completely different mindset and mentality than most of us have. And I want to encourage you. What would happen if what happened in here on Sunday mornings began to be reproduced throughout Birmingham and all nations? Ah, this is the beauty of this thing. Here's the biblical truth, and I pray that you are convinced of this in your heart. The biblical truth, you were created. You, not just the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. You were created to impact Birmingham and all nations for the glory of Christ. It's not an either or. We take this missions thing and think, well, I'm going to stay in Birmingham. Other people will go over there. No, it's a both and. We are involved in a global mission. All of us in this room created to impact Birmingham and all nations for the glory of Christ. And I'm just convinced, I'm convinced that if God's people started taking God at his word and said, we're going to give ourselves to your, this plan and we're not going to be enumerated with the masses and the programs and all these things. Not that those things can't be good, but the center of our lives, the center of our families, and the center of our church is going to be one mission, making disciples of all nations. If we took him in his word, I just wonder what he would do. I wonder what he would do. There's the plan. Make disciples of all nations. What does that look like in your life? Thankfully, the passage doesn't stop here because let's be honest, this is it's tough. How's my life going to have a global impact? Going, baptizing, teaching? These are, these are tough things to do. They're not things we feel comfortable in. They're not things that we have a lot of experience, many of us doing. So how do we do this? Well, thankfully, we've seen the power of Christ and the plan of Christ, but now we come to the presence of Christ. And I want you to see this. I want you to see the importance of Christ's presence in this passage. 
If you, we won't go there just for sake of time, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, just write that down and go look at it sometime because Matthew begins his introduction to Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 there, and he says, there is one who's coming whose name is Emmanuel, and that name means what? God with us. Now that's how Matthew starts his gospel, his introduction of Jesus. We come to the end, and we see Jesus saying, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is a, this is a pretty big emphasis that Matthew's given us here. That this mission is dependent on the presence of Christ in us. I want you to see this morning, we are compelled by the impulse of an indwelling presence. Christ lives in us. His heart beats with our hearts. And when that happens, when that truly happens, then we start to give ourselves to making disciples of all nations. And we rely on his presence. And we need his presence. You see, here's the thing. We know from Scripture, other places in Scripture, we know that God has promised to be with his people. That's a guarantee. All of us in this room who have a a relationship with Christ, we know that God will never leave us or forsake us. We see that all over Scripture. So why does Jesus say this here? I think what he is saying, please hear me. In the original language of the New Testament here, Jesus is saying, not that there would be any doubt about whether my presence is with you, but you are never going to realize, you are never going to realize the power of the presence of Christ in your life and in the church until you are fully surrendered to this mission. We will never realize his power, power of his presence until we are fully surrendered to this mission. Jesus is saying, you get yourself on the front lines and you start making disciples of all nations. Church at Brook Hills, you start doing this. Individual families in this room, you start doing this. Students going into school saying, I'm making disciples of all nations. You are going to begin to depend on the presence of Christ and see the power of his presence at work in your life in ways that you never could have realized. I guarantee it. He has promised to show his presence. You know, if you've been involved in leading people to Christ, or if you've been in maybe on a mission trip somewhere where you've been involved in making disciples of all nations, you know that it's in those times where you are really aware of your presence, of the need for the presence of Christ. I remember going into the Sudan, and that was, it was a a heart-searching, heart-wrenching trip in some ways, knowing that that I was going into a place that had been bombed recently and being able to sit down and talk with Heather about about some of the risks involved with this trip. And it it was difficult. I remember we flew over into Kenya. We spent a couple of nights in Kenya before we went into the Sudan and the night before we were going to go into the Sudan, the guy who was leading our trip got us together and he said, guys, there's some risks, some danger in the Sudan that we haven't talked about that we need to talk about. We were like, oh, great. And so he begins to share. He says, guys, you need to realize that there are a lot of snakes in the Sudan. Now, some of the thing, people think snakes are cool. I'm not one of those guys. Not a big fan of snakes at all. The guy says six of the eight deadliest snakes in the world live in the Sudan. And he begins to go down the list one by one. The green mamba, the black mamba, this snake, that snake. And we're just sitting in there quiet as can be, just sweating. And he kind of laughs, almost like it was funny. It wasn't. But he said, you know, we've got a snake kit. But if you get bit, these snake kits were not made for these snakes. He said, we'll just, if you get bit, we'll pray and see what God does. <laughs> he begins to share a story about how one Sudanese guy had told him, he was walking his cattle down, a, down a, a path in the middle of the African bush there, and there was a green mamba hiding out in the trees. And it came down and bit four of his cows in a row, refueled instantly, and all four of the cows just fell over dead right there on the path. Well, needless to say, we didn't sleep very much that night. Didn't sleep at all that night. I, I, stayed up, I stayed up memorizing Psalm 91 because it says you'll trample upon the lion and the serpent, okay, and you'll trample upon the cobra. And so I memorized the whole psalm so I'd be ready when I went in. And so I remember we got up the next morning, got into our plane, flew into the Sudan, kind of landed on this makeshift airstrip in the Sudan, got our stuff, took a hike to a, a river, which is a whole other story. This is a river that crocodile-infested river, and there's a canoe that we're supposed to cross to get to the other side of the river, and the canoe has a name on the side of it. The name of the canoe is the Mayfloat, okay? <laughs> so, so we got on the Mayfloat, which is a whole other story, go to the other side of the river, and once we get there on the Mayfloat, we get out, and we, there's some trucks waiting for us, and we put all our stuff in, start to pile in. Well, we realize that there's not enough room inside for everybody, so they need some of the smaller guys to get up on top of the truck. So they said, Dave, this is where you come in. We need you to get on top of the truck. I said, okay. I was really excited to be in the Sudan. But I got up there, and we started to drive forward. And I look ahead of me, and I see that we're about to go into the middle of the African bush, and there are trees everywhere. 
And I begin to get the image that I got the night before. And so I start just raising my hands and saying, you will trample upon the lion and the serpent. You will trample upon the cobra. And the whole time we were driving through, that's what I was doing. And everywhere we went for those few weeks that we were there, just always looking for snakes, always aware of the fact that when you're on a trail, there could be a snake. Laying in bed at night, going into this, this mud hut, just like you would picture on, on a movie, and this thatched roof, which basically means anything that so desires can get inside it. We would lay down in the darkness of that Sudanese night and have a mosquito net over us like that would do anything at all. And, and there'd be spiders on the side of the wall, but I can deal with spiders. But we would lay down, be really quiet, but then you begin to hear things above you. And we started turning on our flashlights and looking around. And then we learned it was, it was better just to leave your flashlights off. And, uh, and we, we would go to sleep at night and just praying, God help me, wake up in the morning, oh, Lord, thank you. And everywhere we went, everything we did, we were constantly dependent on his presence. What I want to say to you this morning is I believe that's the way the Christian life was intended to be lived. But I want you to see, I want you to see that as long as you are sitting in the back of the boat, you will not need the presence of Christ like that. You won't need it. You won't depend on him. You won't long to see his presence. But when you are on the front lines and when you are in your workplace and in all nations making disciples, I guarantee you, you will need his presence and you will see his presence in ways that you never could have imagined. His power will be at work in ways that you never could have imagined here in Birmingham you think singing and getting a feeling is what the presence of Christ is all about? The presence of Christ is about being on the front lines, making the gospel known, making disciples, and seeing him work in miraculous ways that you never could have imagined, changing people's lives and using you to impact nations for the glory of his name. That's where the presence of Christ comes in. I remember talking with a guy in Indonesia. I asked him, I said, how did you come to faith in Christ? He said, I'm a part of the Batak tribe of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. He said, there was a day when my entire tribe was Muslim, completely Muslim tribe. He said, a Baptist missionary came to us at one point, and they began to share the gospel with us. Baptist missionary couple, they began to share the gospel with us. He said, tribal leaders heard what they were saying, didn't like it, and they killed and cannibalized that Baptist missionary couple. He said, it was one of the darkest days in the history of my tribe. He said, years later, another missionary came and brought the gospel to us. This time the tribal leaders said, this guy is saying the same thing that those others said. Maybe we should listen. And so they did. They listened. And they placed their faith in Christ. They were converted to faith in Christ. Within two months, the entire tribe was converted. Today, there are three million believers among the Batak tribe of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. So my question for you is, do you want in on this thing or not? I think it all comes down to one question at the very end of those notes. I want to ask you this morning this one overarching question. Are you willing to give God a blank check? Please hear me this morning. I am not asking anybody in this room to say you're going to pack your bags and move to Cambodia next week. And I'm not asking anybody to say you have all the answers for how this is going to look in your life, but I am asking you to say to God, here is a blank check with my life, with my family's life. As a student, as an adult, as a senior adult, whoever you are in this room, to say, God, I'm giving you a blank check. No strings attached. However, I can most effectively make disciples of all nations. I will do it. Now, there's a lot of risk in that prayer. Please don't take that prayer lightly. Who knows what God has in store? My question is, are you willing to say, you are Lord of everything in my life, and I'm going to give myself to this mission? Will you bow your heads with me? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you, invite you, in the time we're about to have where we respond to God's Word, because it's important for us not just to hear it, but to have the opportunity to respond to it. I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. I know that in a room this size, there are many people here who have never called Jesus Lord. You've never asked Him to come into your heart and to forgive you of your sins, and you've never surrendered your life to Him. I want you to know He is Lord. He is worthy of all of your worship. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave and this morning, you can have the opportunity for the first time to submit to him as Lord. In just a second, when we stand and we begin to sing together, there's going to be church leaders down here at the front. And I want to invite you to come to one of them, take him by the hand and say, I want 
to call Jesus Lord for the first time today. And right here in this room, right now, you can have your life changed for all of eternity. The second way I want to invite you to respond this morning is for believers in this room, people who have placed their faith in Christ. There is a command at the center of your life. It is to make disciples of all nations. And I want to ask you this morning to be very honest. Does God have a blank check from you? Does He have a blank check from you, from your family? When you think about career, plans, job, Where you are in life, does he have a blank check? And is your life right now surrendered to this one command, making disciples of all nations? And if it's not, I want to invite you during this time to say to God, I want to give you a blank check. That may be you coming. I pray that you would feel comfortable to come and kneel here at the front and just say to God, I'm giving you a blank check. Whatever this means in my life, I want to do it. Whatever it takes to make disciples of all nations with the gifts and the personalities, the talents you've given me. These church leaders are here to lead in that mission and they would love the opportunity if you'd like to pray with one of them. But I want to invite you as individuals and as a result, this collective church as a whole to come before the throne of God and say, we give you a blank check. We want to make disciples of all nations. We want it to consume us. We want it to captivate us. And we want to impact Birmingham and nations for the glory of Christ. And I want to invite you to come down to the front if you're willing to give God that blank check this morning for the first time or for the first time in a long time and say, I'm in. God, I thank you for this mission. God, I thank you for involving us. God, we praise you because we know that there is coming a day when we will all bow around the throne of Christ and we will sing his praises. And God, we want to be used between now and that day to make your gospel and your glory known. God, we want to take you at your word and believe you when you say that we can impact nations by making disciples. God, I pray for that on behalf of all of the people in this room. Lord, that you would show yourself in our response today to be Lord of our lives and to be Lord of the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Heart and Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, this is Brian, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Sermon on the Mount. During our last episode, we studied Jesus' words on how we should store our treasures in heaven. Jesus told us that no one can serve two masters and that you cannot serve God in wealth. Then Jesus says at the end, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. What is Jesus telling us not to worry about? Today, we will take a look at worrying and what Jesus had to say about it in his Sermon on the Mount. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 25-34. through 34. For this reason I say to you, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worthy much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so closes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In the verses we just read, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, the words, do not be worried, is said by Jesus three times. And the verses that contain these words start by saying, for this reason. The reason why Jesus tells us not to be worried three times is to teach us why we should not be worried and to show the importance of why we shouldn't be worried. In verse 25, Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. If you want to know what Jesus meant when he said for this reason, you must look at the verse before. The verses before are about what we learned last time about how we should not save treasure in this world in that no one can serve both God and wealth. Those who serve God should not worry about what they will eat, drink, or wear. This is because God is their master. God, who is our father and master, looks after us and watches over our lives. What did Jesus mean when he said, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Jesus meant that neither food nor clothing are comparable to the importance of God in our lives, and that God is watching over us. That is why we should never worry about how we will survive in life. In verse 31, Jesus says, Do not worry then what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear for clothing. Jesus tells us the reasons why we should not worry in the prior verses from 26 to 30. He says to look at the birds of the air 
and observe how the lilies of the field grow. The birds in the air do not sow, reap, or gather into barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. The lilies of the field do not toil, nor do they spin, yet even Solomon, in all his glory, could not clothe himself like one of these. Jesus is telling us that even the birds in the air and the flowers in the field are taken care of by God. So why would our God, that we call our Heavenly Father, not take care of us? The Gentiles say, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? They worry because they do not rely on God, but on their own strength and ability. But we believe in God, who already knows all of our needs. This is why Jesus is teaching us that the one who worries about what they will eat, drink, or wear have little faith. In the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus tells us not to pray in meaningless repetition like the Gentiles because our Heavenly Father already knows what we need before we ask. Jesus tells us that we cannot add a single hour to our lives by worrying. This is why we should not worry and not let worrying be part of our lives. Then what is our job? Our job is not to worry about what to eat and how to survive, but to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness. In verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This does not mean to seek God just to receive what we need and want. We, as God's children, must seek God's kingdom and His righteousness first, just as we studied in the Lord's Prayer. After telling us to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness, Jesus tells us not to worry for the third time. So do not worry about tomorrow. The basic quality of a person who worries is to worry about tomorrow. Many people tend to worry about tomorrow and their future. People do not worry about what they are eating now or what they are wearing right at this moment. They worry about tomorrow and the future because they don't know what will happen. As believers of our Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, we should leave our unknown future in God's hands. We should thank God for all the meals that He provides for us daily and for all that He allows us to do by seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. When Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow, He isn't telling us to live our lives without planning or care in the world. Jesus is telling us not to worry about what to eat or how to survive, but to concentrate our lives on God. In 2014, it was reported that Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, was considered one of the top six favorite verses by people all over the world. This may be because this verse gives comfort to those who are constantly worrying about tomorrow and what it may bring. Jesus is not simply telling us that everything will be fine. Jesus is telling us all of this to separate us who are followers and children of God from those who gather and save treasures in the world. We should not have surviving in the world as a top priority in our lives. Jesus teaches us all of this to have us think about our faith in God. I pray that we thank the God that feeds us and clothes us every day, seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Today we study the word of Jesus on how not to worry. Next time, we will learn about judgment from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. I thank you for listening, and I hope you join us next time on the Sermon on the Mount. God bless.
awake to my dry bones Your breath tells death they can ride on Awake me, make me A living stone, a testament to your throne I am nothing without you, I'm on my own The only one who satisfies my soul Pastor McShane constantly contemplated about how his congregation could live a holy life devoted to God, reading the Bible every day as he continued to preach at his church. As he prayed to God, he thought about a Bible reading plan. McShane designed a widely used system for reading through the Bible in one year. The plan became first available to his congregation in the year 1842. The plan entails reading the New Testament and the Psalms through twice a year and the Old Testament through once. As the congregation read through the Bible using the Bible reading plan designed by McShane, their lives began to change as they studied the words of God. When the people read the Bible using McShane's Bible reading plan, they not only read through the Bible, but they began to understand the Bible from the point of view of redemption. This is how unique and special Pastor McShane's Bible reading plan was. But after only nine years of knowing Jesus personally, and after preaching for about seven years, Pastor McShane passed away at the age of 29 in March of 1843. Let me read you a line from one of his last sermons before his death. I do not wish to live for a long time. All of you who are sitting in front of me will one day die as well. Another pastor will come to preach at this church, and other people will fill the seats in the congregation. After you all die, there will be no more repentance and grace. You will no longer be able to see a preacher preach in front of you. That is why you all must try your best now and use the time you have now. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give. As you are to worship, come just as you are before your God. Come. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure. For those who gladly choose you now Come, now is the time to worship Come, now is the time to give your heart Come
time to give your heart Come just as you are to worship Come just as you are before 